can you believe today is the last day of 2017? Some people are like, bring it on, 2018, let me forget this year. I, I, it's hard for me to believe it's about to be 2018. Like it seems like just the other day I was graduating high school, uh, uh, graduating college. Uh, now I'm, I'm, I've been married for 10 years. I have five kids. And it's like, it's, it's just crazy that tomorrow is 2018. And it's, in, it's usually around this time of the year where we do a couple of things as people. It's just natural. Sometimes we, we do the whole look back. We kind of look back over this past year and, and just look at what life has looked like. What has happened? What has God done? What's been really good? What's been really hard? And we, we do the old kind of look over the shoulder. But then also, it's very common for us to look ahead, to say, well, well, what's coming down the pipe in 2018? Uh, things that might be coming our way, big, big, exciting events, or sometimes it's just simply, I, I don't want 2018 to look like 2017. <laughs> and so sometimes there are things in our own lives that we want to, by God's grace, change um, in the next year. It's really, really common uh, to do these kinds of things. Some of you in here, my, my guests will make uh, New Year's resolutions. Um, you'll decide... 2018 is going to be different for me in this way, and I'm going to try by God's grace to change something. Um, but today, as we, as we kind of finish Christmas according to Luke, I don't really want to focus on you today. I don't want to go with a kind of a classic New Year's resolution type uh, conversation where we just think about what are the many things we want to change in our life. No, at the end of 2017, as we, as we finish Christmas according to Luke, I want to focus on our Savior, Jesus Christ. Because I think if we will spend our time trying to grow in our love for him and our obedience to him, then 2018 is going to be an awesome year no matter what happens in your life. So if I can get to the end of 2018 and I look back and maybe things were really hard, but there's one thing that's true. If I look more like Jesus a year from today, then I can call 2018 a good year. Like I can, I can say no matter what circumstances, no matter what hard things, I don't have to say everything is good. But if I look more like Jesus, then 2018 will be a good year. Year. And so that's my hope uh, for today is as we focus on Jesus, that your love for him will grow, that your uh, excitement in the gospel will, will blossom, and that as you look into 2018, the focus will be on him and not, not on you. So to do that, we've got to go to God's word. I don't want you to just hear what Ryan has to say. It's not, uh, that's not helpful. That's not good. God's word is life-changing. So let's look at God's word together. So Luke chapter 2, uh, I'm going to start reading in verse 39, and then we'll follow that text um, through the end of the chapter. Luke chapter 2, verse 39, and if, if you're interested, I am reading out of the ESV, the English Standard Version, so if you're on your app or you have a, uh, you know, a, uh, uh, an iPad, you can go ahead and switch to that if you want to follow along in the same translation that I'm using. If not, you'll be fine. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 39. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, and the child, that's Jesus, grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. When the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. 
His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began searching for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Let's just pray together. Lord, I'm so thankful for your word and the truth that it contains, the way that it shapes and changes how I think about you and myself. And Lord, would you do those kinds of things in our hearts today? Help us to to grow in our love and knowledge of you. Help us to grow in our understanding of who you are and what you've done in such a way that it changes how we live. So Jesus, thank you for this time in your word. You are worthy. Jesus, thank you for the cross. It's in your name we pray all of these things. Amen. This is really an incredible passage. It's actually the only account that we have of Jesus' youth. We have stuff as a a young boy, a little, little boy, and then we have stuff in his life and ministry, 30s and beyond. But when it comes to Jesus, the Son of God who took on flesh, this is the only account that we have of him of his youth. There are four gospels that detail uh, you know, his you know, uh, different var- various parts of Jesus' life and this is the one account of his young childhood. The one account. So why is this account what God wanted us to have? What, what is it about these 11 or so verses that God thought we would understand Jesus differently. and Like, why was it this? There's a, there are many other accounts that he could have included. There are many other things that he could have told us. But God, in his sovereign will, as he used uh, human authors, this is what we have. Why? There's no commands in here. We love command scriptures. There's nothing where it says, go and do likewise, or, uh, or if, if you love me, go and do this. It's, it's, you don't find that here. So why this passage? Well, I think this passage is incredible because it tells us some, some amazing things about who Jesus is. It puts Jesus on, a dis- on display and, and tells us a couple of things about him that if we understand them and if we actually look at them through the rest of Scripture have life-changing implications for you and for me. What we see here, even as a young 12-year-old boy, is that Jesus knows who he is. He knows who he is. And if we'll spend some time here, I think we can know Jesus a little bit better. The title for for this, this, this message is Jesus is No Ordinary Son. 
He's no ordinary son. He's different than any person who's ever been born in the history of humanity. And if we understand that, that has great implications for our lives. So but before we can look at that, before we can actually say, well, what does this mean for us? We actually have to understand a little bit about what's going on in this text. A little bit about what's, what's actually happening here in Luke chapter 2. One of the first things, if you look, uh, you know, starting in, in really in verse 39, but also in the following verses, you will see that Joseph and Mary had decided to build their life around obedience to God. They cared about the things that God wanted them to care about. And uh, evidenced by the fact that they had built in this trip to, uh, to Jerusalem, to the temple uh, over Passover. They, they, they care about it. Verse 41 says, Now as his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover. They cared about this. They cared about the Old Testament law and, and obeying these things and honoring the Lord with their lives. In, Jewish kind of, uh, in the Jewish law, they, all the men uh, were required three times a year to head back to the temple to celebrate these various uh, celebrations. Passover was one of them. Uh, from what I could tell, uh, lots of them did not do it, but if they were going to get to one, Passover was it. It was the biggest one. It celebrated some amazing things. And so we don't know whether Joseph and Mary went to all of them or not. We don't know really how that worked out, but we know that Joseph built into his life an obedience to what they knew about God through the Old Testament law. And now, uh, the men were required to go, but often they would bring their wives or they would bring their families with them. Uh, out of obedience, Joseph and Mary built this into our life. And I want you to understand something. It doesn't say this, but this is no simple trip. This is a costly, time-consuming, hard trip to build into your life. They lived roughly 70 miles on foot away from the temple. I, when was the last time you walked 70 miles? I haven't. <laughs> so it took them days. They had to make all the arrangements. They had to stop doing whatever their job was. And they, they, they would go and, and make time from their schedule to go do what they thought obedience looked like according to the Old Testament. That's a long trip. And it's, <laughs> it, it's, not, it's not as simple as like loading their minivan at, and just leaving and just going. They had to prepare everything, everything they would need, all the food they would need. And they made this journey because they loved God. So the Feast of Passover was an awesome celebration of God's delivering his people out of Egypt from slavery. If you look in the book of Exodus, you'll see, uh, you'll see the Passover. Uh, and so this was a great celebration of God, the saving God, who redeemed his people from Israel. And that's what Joseph and Mary went to celebrate. But this is actually where our account gets a little bit interesting. They go, they celebrate Passover, and they go to leave, and Jesus stays behind. Do we have any 12-year-olds in the room? Can you just raise your hand if you're 12? One couple? Real high. 12? Okay. You're left in the city without your parents for three days. <laughs> Good luck getting food. This is what's going on here. It's not just like, it, it, his parents leave, 
12-year-old Jesus is in Jerusalem. Now, I really think we need to give Mary and Joseph a little bit of grace here. Let me explain why. They're, leaving Jerusalem was not just load your minivan, check your rearview mirror, oh, Jesus is there, we're good to go. That's not how this worked. It was often that, that these big family units, these big caravans would make these, these trips together. And so as they're getting ready to leave, there's loads of people getting ready. There, there's hustle and bustle and meals and all of this thing. And as they were getting ready to leave, it was common for the kids to just be a part of the group and they would just leave. But Jesus was not there today. Now I want to be very clear, Jesus was not disobeying his parents here. This is not a, a Jesus' first disobedience where he gets spanked. This is not what we're talking about. Jesus never disobeyed, perfectly obedient, uh, but they just missed him. Simple. They just missed him. And also, one of the things we have to realize, and once again, this doesn't have it in the text, so it's a little bit of conjecture, but often... Uh, around that time period when these caravans would set out and go on these long journeys, often the women and children would be at the front and the men would kind of bring up the rear. And now J Jesus was right on that edge. He's almost a man, but he's not quite. So I could absolutely see this being a classic, Joseph, I thought you had him. I thought you had him. Like the whole Home Alone, so they're a day out, they, they may be setting up camp, they're trying to figure this out, and they realize, we don't have our kid. And he's not just any kid, oh, by the way, it's Jesus. I just think we need to be a little gracious. This is not like, uh, you know, child abuse or child neglect. In this time frame, it was this kind of moving together and caring for each other was very, very common. So all that, all that to say, I think that sets some of the context for what's happening and what's going on. They're traveling back for the Passover. They leave with this huge caravan, this big family group, and Jesus gets left behind. So what, what does this actually teach us about God? This text, what does this actually teach us about who God is? Well, I think... Um, we learn about who Jesus is, his identity, and we're going to unpack that together. But I think there are three implications for if he is who we, he says he is. There's three implications that radically affect your life tomorrow. Actually, your life today. Actually, your life yesterday. They affect your life, all of your life. And so the first implication I want to draw out for you, uh, if you want to consider how Jesus should affect you moving forward is that since Jesus is human, you can have hope. So since Jesus is human, you can have hope. One of the things that is prominently displayed in our text for today is the humanity of Jesus Christ. He wasn't a God in the fashion of Greek mythology who just came and walked on the earth interacting with human beings. He was God the Son who took on flesh. It's really important for our understanding of who Jesus is and our understanding for the, of the gospel. We'll talk about that in a moment. But he was human, and since he was human, we can have hope. Let's look at a couple of spots where we see Jesus' humanity on display here in this text. Verse 40 says that the child, that's Jesus, grew. 
He became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Look to the end at verse 52. It says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus was growing, not just simply physically, but in wisdom and in stature, in favor with God and in favor with man. According to God's word, Jesus grew. He grew in wisdom and understanding. He grew in knowledge. He grew in favor with God and man. Jesus grew. He was a man. He walked this earth as a man. Not just, <laughs> I'm not going to say it, not just uh, a, a God with a, a body, though. He took on a human flesh, a human soul. He was fully God and fully man. One of the, one of the best pictures, we'll go there in just a second, but it's, it's Hebrews chapter 2. And one of the things we're going to learn in Hebrews chapter 2 is that God became like us in order to save us. That God the Son, Jesus Christ, became like us in order to save us. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 2 together. Hebrews 2. Starting in verse 14. I'll give you just a second to get there. Hebrews 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And now listen to this verse. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Can anybody say amen to that? So, so good. And let's unpack this together. What we see here in 17, 8, and 18 is he became like his brothers in every respect. And if we look at scripture, it's every respect except for our sin. But he became like us in order to redeem us. It says he did this so he could be our merciful and faithful high priest, that he understands temptation and can help us with temptation, and that he made propitiation for our sins. He became like us. In order to save us. So he is that merciful and faithful high priest. Our mediator. Hebrews is one of the best places to help us interpret or understand the Old Testament. And so if you, if you read any of the Old Testament, you know the role of the high priest. Was the, he was the, the go-between. Between sinful humans and God. And now Jesus, uh, because he became like us, can represent us. What good news is that? He understands us because he experienced temptation, real temptation, and he resisted temptation, never sinning. But that means when we are tempted, we have a Savior who understands and can help us say no to temptation. 
He made propitiation for the sins of his people. This is really good news. Propitiation is a word that emphasizes the dealing of sin or, or, or the, the putting away of sin in such a way that it deals with the wrath of God. So propitiation is, 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 is conquering sin in such a way where the wrath of God is dealt with, where, where God, his wrath that we deserve is no longer directed at us. That's propitiation. So when you see that word, it really has to do with the putting away of sin. The putting away of sin. And in so doing, dealing with the wrath of God that we deserve. This is why the humanity of Jesus is so important. We cannot forget it. We cannot put it aside. It was not simply just absorbed into his godness. He is fully God, fully man. So how does that actually give us hope? Ryan, you said at the beginning that if we, since we know that he is human, that gives us hope. Well, why or how does that give us hope? Well, it's because in becoming like us, he accomplished what we couldn't in order that we could be made right with God. We have a great representative in Jesus Christ, a great high priest. Author Matt Perman explained it like this when he said, because Jesus is man... He has experienced the same things that we do. Because he is man, he can identify with us more intimately. Because he is man, he can come to our aid as our sympathetic high priest when we reach the limits of our human weaknesses. Because he is man, we can relate to him. He is not far off and uninvolved. Because he is man, we cannot complain that God does not know what we're going through. He experienced it firsthand. This is hope worth holding on to. Since Jesus is human, you can have hope. He knows, he understands, and he can represent you in his perfect obedience. That's why we can't lose the humanity of Jesus. But honestly, that's not the whole picture. If it's just we have a human Jesus, that's still not good enough. That's still not good enough. It doesn't do what we need done. He is not just an ordinary son. Scriptures are abundantly clear. He is God the Son. God the Son. So this brings me to, I think, our second implication from the identity of Jesus is since he is God the Son, we can have confidence since he is God the Son, we can have confidence, eternal confidence. Back in Luke chapter 2, you can head back there, Joseph and Mary head back to Jerusalem to find Jesus. Um, they, they go back and they search for him and they find him in the temple. They find him in conversation with some of the teachers there. And then we read these words. Verse 47 tells us, that everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. Much of the educational system in that time, particularly in the temple, would have been done through discussion. Um, often, excuse me, often a, uh, a teacher would maybe bring out an idea and they would talk about it. Uh, it was also very, very common for a teacher to ask a question to his students to see what they were, not just what they were thinking, but to allow them to wrestle and talk and, and, and just kind of dialogue about something. So in this process of Jesus being in the temple and learning, 
and growing, people were amazed. They were amazed at his wisdom, his answers, and what, what he would say and how he was listening. <laughs> but when his parents found him, they were astonished, and it's not the same astonishment. It's not they were not, they were not just astonished at the answers he was giving. They were actually astonished with Jesus' behavior. They did not expect this behavior from Jesus. Let's read verse 48 together. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. If I were to modernize this for us today, it would be something like, Jesus, what were you thinking? You, you've worried us sick. We've been looking for you everywhere. Why would you do this to us? Now, it's Jesus' response that I want to hone in on right now to understand a little bit more about who Jesus is. It's his response we need to take note of. And in verse 49, this is how he answers his parents. And keep in mind, not with a disrespectful tone, because he is fully perfect in his obedience. He never sinned. He says, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Some of your translations might say, be about my father's business. I actually think the better understanding is in my father's house, but they honestly, they carry some of the same understanding. This 12-year-old Jesus understood who he was. Consider this for a moment before we unpack this. This is actually the first recorded words of Jesus as a man um, that we have in Scripture. Now, he said other things. This is not his first words at the age of 12. That's not what I'm saying. But these are, the, these are the first words of Jesus as a man that we have in Scripture like this. I'm not denying that Jesus, uh, the Son of God, is a, 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 the author of Scripture. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying here are the first words we have recorded of Jesus, the man. So we should listen up. What is it that he says right here uh, that tells us who he is? He says, without fear, I'm the son of God. I, where else would I be but in my father's house? This was no ordinary claim. Uh, if it was ordinary, his parents would have understood him. It was not ordinary. In fact, they said, uh, it says in verse 50, they did not understand the saying that he just spoke to them. And in fact, if you read your scriptures and if you were to pop over to John, like John chapter 10, you would see that the religious leaders of his day tried to kill him for similar statements connecting himself to God. This is not a normal claim from a 12-year-old boy. This is a young boy who understands he is God the Son. God the Son. And he's supposed to be about the Father's stuff. He's doing what God the Father is about. We cannot turn a blind eye to this. And this is not, I'm not making a point that this is the only time we ever see it. In fact, turn in your copy of Scripture to John chapter 1. What you need to see and understand is that Jesus, God the Son, took on flesh. This did not negate his godness or his deity in any way, shape, or form. John chapter 1, 
want to read the first few verses, and then uh, we'll skip to verse 14 to try to connect the dots for you. John chapter 1 starts like this. In the beginning was the Word. And your translation should have a capital W right there. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Skip to verse 14. And the word, that same word we just read about, and the word became flesh, and he dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When you read in John chapter 1, the word, that is Jesus, God the Son. God the Son who was with God. God the Son who is God. God the Son who created all things. And then in verse 14, he came to earth and took on flesh for us. God the Son. So why does this matter then? Why does this matter that we not lose his divinity, his divine nature, his deity? Why couldn't he just be a human? Well, just simply, no man could accomplish what Jesus needed to accomplish. No mere man could accomplish forgiveness of our sins. No mere man could redeem a people for himself. No mere man is worthy of worship. If Jesus was just a man, we would actually be sinning when we worship him. You realize that? Like if, if we were worshiping Jesus and he was just a man, was not God the Son, we would actually be committing idolatry by worshiping somebody other than God. But because he is God the Son who took on flesh, we are worshiping God when we sing and when we pray and when we rejoice uh, about God, about Jesus, excuse me. No mere man could accomplish what Jesus needed to accomplish. It's because he is God the Son that we can have confidence. We can have confidence that what he accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection was enough. Because he is God. He's God the Son. We can trust Jesus with our eternity because he's God the Son, not just a mere man. If you have trusted in Christ, brother and sister, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ for your salvation, you can have confidence because God the Son took on flesh and died for you. And so that really is what brings me to uh, the the final implication that we've got to talk about. It's really, we can't separate these things. It's not we have the humanity or we have the deity. It's we have both. And so since Jesus is God the Son incarnate, I'm going to use that, that term a lot moving forward, since he is God the Son incarnate, God the Son who took on a human nature. It is because he is God the Son incarnate that we can have grace, that we can have forgiveness, that we can have eternal life, that we can have eternity with God. It is only because he is fully God and fully man, one person, two natures, that we have confidence, that we have hope, and that we have salvation. 
We cannot lose this idea. This may seem redundant. It may sound like, Ryan, you've already kind of been talking like this. You're right. There's no way to separate it entirely. He is God the Son incarnate. He's God the Son who took on flesh. It's because Jesus is God the Son and he took on a human nature that you and I can be forgiven. There's no other way to have that. This 12-year-old Jesus in our text today helps us understand what we come to see throughout the rest of Scripture. Luke 2 is all about who Jesus is. It's not a parenting manual. It's not telling you to, to not be like Mary and Joseph. It's not what it's talking about. It's, it's, it's about Jesus. And we see his humanity and his deity on display. We have no, no grace. We have no forgiveness. We have no eternity with God without God the Son incarnate. This 12-year-old Jesus, think about this just for a moment. This 12-year-old Jesus was the one who was born of a virgin to save people from their sins. This 12-year-old Jesus in the temple was the Jesus who went on to obey his whole entire life perfectly. Do everything God called him to do perfectly. He obeyed perfectly, never sinning, enduring the cross for you and me. In fact, we even see it here in our text for today. In verse 51, it says, And he went down with them, and he came to Nazareth, and he was submissive to them. Jesus was obedient. He was the only person who perfectly obeyed. Submissive and obedient, that trait would carry his entire life, and that's why he can represent you and me on the cross. This 12-year-old Jesus was the Jesus who would go on to perform great miracles, testifying to the fact that he was no ordinary man. This was the same Jesus who would preach to thousands. This was the Jesus who would be arrested, beaten, tortured, and hung on a cross. This is the same Jesus who on that cross would drink the wrath of God we deserved. This is the same Jesus who then would be buried in a tomb only to be resurrected on the third day, defeating death, sin, and Satan forever. This Jesus this 12-year-old Jesus is the Savior we needed. Fully God, fully man, the only person who could accomplish redemption for sinners like you and like me. We needed God the Son incarnate. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5 with me. Romans chapter 5 is, is a, great, a great chapter in its own right, but the last really three verses, four verses, they just remind us the greatness of Jesus, why he had to come in all of his identity that we might have forgiveness. Romans 5, starting in verse 18, says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, 
So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, and so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that, this is good stuff, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is a great passage and we see why Jesus, God the Son, had to come and take on flesh. You see, sin entered the world through Adam. We read about it in Genesis. It it entered the world through him and and we are considered guilty. We have inherited sin and inherited corruption. Our, Our first representative failed. But, but God sent a second. He sent a second representative called Jesus, who would then be called the last Adam because he would accomplish what the first one couldn't do, didn't do. Through the first Adam, we are all guilty, but because of the last Adam, God the Son incarnate, we have grace. We can have mercy. We can have forgiveness and eternal life. You see, Christmas, according to Luke, is not a cute little story about a baby and some animals in a barn. That's not Christmas, according to Luke. Christmas, according to Luke, is history. It's about God the Son taking on a human nature, both both body and soul, humiliating beginnings as he headed towards a humiliating death. But glorious things were accomplished through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection. Because God the Son incarnate was fully man and fully God, he was the only Savior who could accomplish what we needed to achieve forgiveness, to turn away the wrath of God, to make us right with God to an eternity with God for us. Now, we don't know everything about the 12-year-old Jesus that I would like to know. I would actually love, absolutely love to know what it looked like for him to obey his parents perfectly. I'd love to be in the room and just watch him for a day obey all the time. I mean, I have five kids, and I'm a stinking sinner myself. I would love to see what that obedience looked like. I would love to see what his friends looked like. I'd love to see if him and his friends played games. Did Jesus always win? (laughs) I mean, did they sit down and play a board game and like, they're like, Jesus, sorry, you can't play. It's just not fair. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Bible doesn't talk like that. I'd love to know what it was like to be James's half brother. Getting spanked again and knowing your brother has never once been disciplined. At least rightfully. He he never disobeyed. I'd love to know some of these things. But that's not the point of Luke chapter 2. We didn't get those things because God didn't think we needed them. What we needed to know was Jesus obeyed his parents. That he grew physically and spiritually because he was a man. But that Jesus also knew he was the son of God. He was God, the son, 
incarnate. And it was only because he was that, even at a young age of 12, that we have hope and confidence in the future because he accomplished what we never could. He accomplished what no mere man could accomplish. And he actually accomplished what he could not do if he did not take on flesh to dwell with us. That's why we, that's why we went to Hebrews 2 at the beginning in order to uh, atone for us and to achieve propitiation and to help us in our temptation, he became like us so that he might save us. That is the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of the Christmas story. The beauty is not in the baby in a manger or the baby and the animals. The beauty is God the Son took on flesh that you might have hope. That is the Christmas story according to Luke. The incarnation, the taking on of the human nature by God the Son is a staggering truth. And that is something you better be talking about all year round, but especially at Thanksgiving. Sorry, Thanksgiving. At Christmas. Talk about Thanksgiving too, but especially at Christmas. If we don't talk about this in our homes at Christmas, we're celebrating wrong. God, the Son, took on flesh for us. That is the beauty of the incarnation, the beauty of the Christmas story. Tim Keller explained it really well when he's talking about the incarnation. Here's what he said. He says, some have argued that the supreme miracle of Christianity is not the resurrection of Christ from the dead, but the incarnation. The beginningless, omnipotent creator of the universe took on a human nature without the loss of his deity so that Jesus was both fully divine and fully human. Of all things that Christianity proclaims, this is the most staggering. Now, I'm not in the business of ranking these awesome things. Like, who's to say the incarnation is more staggering than the resurrection? All I want you to know is the incarnation is incredible. That God the Son came to earth to take on flesh, to purchase and redeem a people for himself. That should knock you off your feet. That should wake you up in the morning with gratitude in your hearts because of what Christ has done. So how should this truth affect your 2018. How, how should the truth of God the Son incarnate, how should it affect your 2018? Well, friends, it all depends on where you stand with Jesus. How should it affect you? Well, it depends where you stand. Maybe you're in here today and you would say, you know, I, Ryan, I'm a little skeptical of all the things you've been saying. Seems too good to be true. Well, I can assure you it's really good and really true, but I understand why you might say that. What you believe, friend, about Jesus has great implications for your life today, for 2018, and actually for eternity, and that's what I'm concerned with. I challenge you to explore the claims of the Bible 
I think you will find if you will go after them and, and you'll ask for help, I think you will find the Bible can withstand your criticisms. I have confidence in God's word. Maybe you're in here today and, you're, and you just say, Ryan, I don't believe what you just said. I don't believe anything that you just said. Can I encourage you just to take a moment to look around this world that we live in? Look at the beauty and intricacy of creation. Look at the amazingness of, of people, the intricacy of the people, the intricacy of this world, all the things that have to hold true for this world to continue. And then look for a moment at the corruption in this world, and you will find the Bible's claims about the world and about sin are the clearest. They're the ones that make the best explanation for the world that we live in. No other religious liter literature makes the, the right claims about the world that we live in like the Bible. And I'm sure in your own life, you notice there are ways where you don't feel like you're measuring up. I just want to say Jesus offers you forgiveness. He offers you forgiveness if you'll repent and trust him for salvation. And this is not just a, a, a one-time thing. This is a change your lifetime kind of thing. Change your eternity kind of thing. If you say, Jesus, I, I need your help. Forgive me for my sin. Would you, be, would you save me and make me new? You can have new life with Christ for eternity. Maybe you're in here today and you're like, Ryan, I love Jesus, but 2017 kicked my tail. Like, I want out. Well, good news, tomorrow's 2018. So you're out. But maybe that's you. You're just feeling beat up, discouraged, lonely. 2017 was just hard for you. Let me encourage you to remember what Jesus has accomplished for you. Remember what God has done for you. Speak the gospel to yourself over and over again. Let it be the great healing balm for your soul in 2018. God the Son incarnate has taken on, uh, has defeated death. He's defeated sin. He's defeated Satan. And he's made a way for you to be right with God. Be thankful. That doesn't mean what happened this year is not hard. I'm not saying forget about it, but return to what Christ has done for you. That is where your great hope will be. Maybe you're in here like, Ryan, I know I love Jesus, but I feel like I've lost some of my excitement about who God is and what he's done. Like sometimes when we talk about who Jesus is and what he's done, I just, yeah, that's good and all. But kind of like, what has he done for me lately? I know we'd never say that. But many of us think that. And so let me just ask you to consider, have you forgotten your first love? Like, have you, have you put your hopes in things that will not satisfy have you tried to make life about stuff? It won't, it won't satisfy. Have you tried to make your life about people? I promise you, they're going to let you down. Have you made your life about achievement in your job or in your, uh, in your school or whatever? 
It will not satisfy you. God the Son incarnate died on the cross to purchase and redeem your soul. Return to your first love. Remember again what Christ has done for you. That'll make 2018 a very different year for you. Or maybe you're in here and you're like, Ryan, none of those are me. Like, I, I am genuinely thankful for the gospel. I have my problems. I'm not perfect. But God has done a great work in my life, and I'm so, so thankful for it. And 2017 wasn't all that bad. So what does that mean for you then? Well, friend, relentlessly pursue the gospel. Keep on keeping on. There's going to be a day where your gratitude and thankfulness for the gospel is going to be put to the test. And you need to have built the habit of waking up in the morning and being thankful for the God who redeemed your soul. Build that habit. Build a habit of talking to others about it. Students, this is something we talk about a lot. You need to build into your life right now real conversations about Jesus. Not just about the latest movies, not just about the latest TV shows, not about the stuff. Build into your life people who want to talk about their Redeemer. Because you need it. You're going to need it. Remember God the Son incarnate. He was the last Adam who conquered death and sin and Satan, offering grace and mercy and forgiveness to any that would repent and trust in him. This, my friends, is Christmas according to the Bible. Jesus is no ordinary son. He's God, the son incarnate. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for your word and a little glimpse, Jesus, into who you are that we get in Luke chapter 2. That, that even as we read throughout the rest of scripture, we, uh, our, our understanding of you only grows of how amazing and how powerful and how awesome you are. That what you accomplished on the cross was, was so far beyond what any normal man could do. So Lord, thank you for doing that. And Lord, so I just, I ask and I pray uh, that you would help us this day, today, to leave here grateful for what you've done. Not just simply to start talking about lunch or not just simply to be thinking about the, the New Year's Eve party that we're going to be attending and having fun at with friends. Lord, help us to consider again the greatness of the gospel, the greatness of the God-man who died on the cross for our sins. Jesus, you are good, and you have loved us so well. Do not let us leave here unchanged, unchallenged, unaffected by your word. So Jesus, we love you, and it's in your name we pray all of these things. Amen.